0: The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, startups, creatives, Hollywood, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: The peak. US household in 2012 that were cable subscribers was something like a hundred million. There were a hundred million people in this country that were paying for ESPN. How many of those people are going to pay for ESPN in a streaming world, and how much does Disney have to charge? for ESPN in a streaming world.
0: Perhaps you saw the headline, streaming just surpassed traditional TV, with U.S. adults expected to spend more than half their daily viewing time on digital platforms such as Netflix, YouTube, and Disney+. Plus. But profits are elusive, costs are out of control, and there's just so much login fatigue going around right now. And so media, big and small, is due for some serious merging and acquiring. Who needs who? Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Enjoy Full Disclosure on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station. You can get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Joining me from the Garden State is CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman. He covers media, technology, telecom, indispensable byline. He was at Bloomberg, where we crossed paths for nearly a decade. He worked as an M&A reporter and as a media reporter. He graduated from Harvard in 2004 and has a master's in journalism from Northwestern's Medill School and an MBA from NYU Stern. Did I encapsulate all of that correctly,
1: sir? Yeah, you can thank Bloomberg for paying for the uh, NYU Stern MBA. That one I got at night while I was working there. But It yeah. was a
0: great, it was a legendary benefits package and to say nothing of the peanut butter machine on the sixth floor and the free coffee. But 100%. I digress. You cover this beat, including Bloomberg and others, and you've developed a, a good long list of sources. I cannot recall a period where we went from everything being so flush in Hollywood within like... 20 months to kind of so bare and everybody cutting budgets, you know, HBO, which was spun off unceremoniously from AT&T is cutting things left and right. You have the streamers suddenly in this season of austerity and you're in the middle covering that.
1: It's been pretty unbelievable. I will say, I mean, maybe what's even more unbelievable about it is I spent years writing about how Netflix was upending this industry And then what happened sort of really almost overnight is that all these legacy media companies then tried to be Netflix. And when the bottom fell out of Netflix around January of this past year, that was the catalyst for this entire industry pullback. So in essence, Netflix went from disruptor to industry leader that everyone has followed. And now everyone's future is sort of tied to Netflix's. So as goes Netflix, as goes all these other companies that Netflix spent the last 10 years disrupting.
0: So we're clearly in this period of login fatigue. I think anybody could have predicted it three, four years ago, whether it's the New York Times or Spotify, Netflix, Hulu, you know, there's always a premium tier, even, you know, CNBC, you're being hit up with all of these content relationships you know, to get past the wall garden. And it was going to hit up against something at a certain point. Yes, you'd have to pry somebody's Netflix login from their cold, dead hands. But at a certain point, you know, is it $20 a month is the pain point? 22 $23 a month. They stop growing domestically and everybody's going after the same customer, the same fatigued customer. Is that where we are?
1: I think that's where we are in this country, at least. You know, Netflix still holds out a lot of hope that there's still – a decent growth runway globally. And if you look, you know they release these earnings statements every quarter and they list out the ARPU, the average revenue per user. And certainly in other countries, the amount of money that people pay for Netflix is way lower than what they pay in this country and in Europe. So there's an argument there that absolutely they still have room to run. Because it's not really the same apples-to-apples comparison. But in this country and in Canada and in Europe, there's certainly an argument that we've hit the wall. We've hit the saturation point and the business is going to change somewhat now because now that we're at that wall, it's not like the price increases are going to stop. They're probably going to keep going. That has been the plan all along. But that prompts, words,
0: that prompts churn. That prompts people to leave. And then it's expensive to acquire customers all over again. You have to have teasers. You might have an ad tier or something else going on. It just throws a monkey wrench into your business.
1: So so that's this is where we are now, Robin. So it causes churn. The amount of subscribers may start to drop. And that's why you see Netflix doing password sharing crackdowns and advertising tiers, as you mentioned, and video games. Like we're on to phase two here. The growth needs to come from somewhere else, and that's where that company is. The problem with some of these legacy media companies is they haven't been doing streaming for the past 10 years. So they're still in phase one. They're still in money-losing uh, subscriber ad phase one, but the growth may have stopped for those companies too. Maybe not as drastically as it has uh, for Netflix because they're not quite there from a cyclical standpoint. But uh, the major problem here is if general streaming growth has stopped because people's wallets are now saturated because they're subscribing to too many of these things, and these companies are still in the money-losing stage of streaming, then what? Like, are they supposed to pivot again? Is there some sort of new product that these companies are going on? Are they supposed to abandon streaming? I I don't know exactly, so a lot of people just kind of shrug and say, like, well, I guess they'll consolidate with each other because there is no other room to go for you know the the, the non huge legacy media companies.
0: You want to talk about a consolidated Frankenstein? You've covered Hulu quite well. For people who are not familiar, Disney currently owns sixty six percent of Hulu, while NBC Peacock parent and Alex Sherman parent Comcast owns the rest. You cover this so well. And right now, they're kind of in this courtship over does Disney want to buy the rest out of Comcast? And if so, Comcast wants a rich price. Or Comcast might be bluffing and saying, heck, we'll buy it off of you. It's a pretty nifty platform. And you share this news. I didn't even realize this was a thing. The recently ousted CEO of Disney, kind of in these negotiations with Comcast CEO Brian Roberts, you reported, as they tried to escalate the sale of Hulu, according to people familiar with the matter, Comcast CEO floated a number of possible ideas, including Disney selling ESPN to Comcast. I mean, ESPN? Isn't that a cash cow? Isn't that something that's kind of supporting all of Disney's business, including the theme parks right now, which are overrun with people and the the ticket prices are high and the get in front of the line prices are high? But I never knew that was on the table for ESPN to be sold.
1: Well, to be fair, Disney said no. So I'm not sure how, how on the table it was. But look, first of all, there is truth to that, I'm told, by good authority. And Bob Chapek, when he was CEO there, was at least considering the idea of either spinning or selling ESPN for a little while. He ultimately decided, uh, no, that I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. And I'm not really sure it was all that serious. At any but day. isn't
0: ESPN the last frontier? And live sports are controversial, but we just saw these ratings for the Super Bowl and everything. It's the last platform where kind of linear cable is still hugely profitable for them. You get people that watch it live overwhelmingly. The ad rates are high. Shouldn't ESPN... I mean, but then again, the flip side of that is it's very hard to have a full-fledged ESPN streaming product that doesn't cannibalize from the very lucrative channel on television.
1: A lot of the the issue you just laid out is the issue that every one of these publicly traded companies is going to have to go through, which is, yes, you're right. ESPN still makes a lot of money for Disney, overwhelmingly more than many of the other businesses within that company. It also is absolutely the last stand of linear bundled TV. In other words, the marquee programming on ESPN still is not available on streaming. And by and large, other than some news products, that's not really the case for anything else. News and sports are what's keeping the bundle alive. And that bundle is a much better business than streaming for Disney and every other legacy media company. All of that is true. That said, Wall Street more than anything values growth and it is a very hard sell to convince investors that ESPN is a growth business because millions and millions of people cancel cable every year and all of those people pay $10 or whatever it is per month for ESPN whether or not they watch. So to your point about transitioning ESPN from linear to streaming – in the streaming world, only people that want to watch ESPN will pay for ESPN so the number of people subscribing to ESPN is going to go down and down significantly from the peak. US household in 2012 that were cable subscribers was something like 100 million. There were 100 million people in this country that were paying for ESPN. How many of those people are going to pay for ESPN in a streaming world? And how much does Disney have to charge for ESPN in a streaming world? Well, let's say it's 25 million out of the 100 million. Are diehard sports fans. Let's say it's forty million. I don't really know what the right number is. Let's say it's fifty million. Well, if it's fifty million, if they're charging ten dollars at a hundred million, they're going to need to be charging twenty dollars at fifty million in order to just break even. And again, Wall Street wants growth. So maybe the number that they charge for ESPN streaming needs to be even higher than $20, and that's at $50 million. If the number is more like $40 million, then maybe they need to charge $25 or more. And now you have an ESPN streaming product at $25 per month that's more expensive than every other streaming service out there. You know, look, it's a tough sell, and that's what Disney's up against, and that's why some people argue maybe this business makes sense as its own separate thing, or at least outside of everything else going on at Disney.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman. Uh, I do want to ask you, I want to go down this corridor with sports. I am a huge Lakers and Dodgers fan. I also grew up in Miami where I love the Dolphins. I love the Miami Hurricanes. I know you're a ginormous 49ers fan following you on social media. Sorry about the playoff flame out, but there's a lot of promise ahead for you guys. What's stopping me and, uh, and others from having an a la carte relationship with, let's say, the Los Angeles Lakers, especially as kind of virtual encore technology, Oculus stuff advances? I know that there's enormous money on the table with the cable networks and ESPN and NBC and NFL and NBA on TNT or whatever it is. Why can't these leagues and these teams go directly to fans and have that a la carte relationship with them? I don't want to pay for the bundle. I don't care about college lacrosse. I don't care about hockey. I don't care about ESPN six and kind of you know pickleball or cornholing. And that's just ginormously inefficient. It's putting so much stuff in my shopping cart that I don't want. But I'm really open to having a direct relationship with the Lakers and Dolphins and Dodgers.
1: Yeah. So what has prevented this from happening at this point is just there's, I mean, you sort of answered your question in the intro. So much money is thrown at the leagues because of the desperation of media companies to get these properties that it's always been the safe bet. For the leagues to just take the money. In other words, just give them the exclusive content, whether that's NBC or in the most recent iteration for the NFL, for Sunday Ticket, YouTube TV, which is again, you know, paying $2 billion or so a, a, a year. Or
0: Amazon Thursday night.
1: Amazon Thursday night, a billion dollars every season. You know, ESPN pays well over $2 billion for Monday Night Football. The money is just so big that it has never interested the leagues to be like, maybe we should try something else because what if the something else doesn't work? And to some degree, it is a gamble. But I think that in the next iteration of rights, so the league signed an 11-year deal. There is an out clause after I think it's seven years. The NBA is about to renew its rights. Those rights end at the end of the 2020. 425 season. They will renew them again. I don't know exactly how long it will be. Let's say it's, you know, the last deal was nine years. Let's say it's something similar to that, and again, they have some sort of out clause after seven or so. Seven years from now, I think it is absolutely possible that the technology has advanced from a broadband standpoint, and also maybe other, you know, gizmos and doodads are around, kind of like you said, from, from an augmented reality standpoint or whatever it may be that it does now interest the leagues to at least attempt to have some sort of a la carte relationship on a per team basis where the price elasticity is tested. In other words, there may be a way because the ideal here is to charge people as much money as possible. And I do think the leagues understand that there are certainly diehard fans out there that are willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money if they can get all access, you know every game, every interview behind the scenes in the locker room, exactly kind of what you're talking about, so yeah, I think we're headed there, but I also think we're at least seven years away from that, really, seven years away, twenty thirty I think so. the rights are going to be tied up and and they're going and 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 the exclusivity is going to be such a factor because these companies need those rights. They're they're oxygen, their lifeblood. It's like the one exclusive thing that these companies have that they've paid billions of dollars for, that they will be very, very upset with the league to undercut them until they literally contractually don't have them anymore. And there's nothing they can do about it.
0: But in fairness, you're in New Jersey right now. And let's say the 49ers are having a mediocre 500 season or something, and they're not being on Sunday night football or Monday night football a lot or much you know the game of the week uh on Sunday are you able to have a relationship with nfl.com where you can see all of the games as a kind of a 49ers fan out in New Jersey and pay something chunky to them
1: not through nfl.com but I can do it through Sunday Ticket uh that's the only way I'm able to do it fortunately for fans with YouTube TV acquiring Sunday Ticket they won't need to be a direct tv subscriber anymore That has been a major holdup for millions of people uh, who who don't want to be a DirecTV subscriber, but it was the only way to get Sunday Ticket. So that barrier at least will be gone, and so that will open up Sunday Ticket for more and more people. Um, But that's the only way you can do it right now. So you need to buy all of the out-of-market games, not just the 49ers game or whatever team you want. Oh, wow.
0: I'm old enough to remember when you had to find the kind of the dive bar in Chelsea or the Upper East Side to see where all the Miami Dolphins fans were playing. Or Al Franken, obviously a huge Vikings fan, would go to this bar on the Upper East Side where all the Vikings fans were to see the games on Sundays. I mean, it seems like a relic idea right now like with satellite relationships at a bar. I
1: agree. I agree. Look, a lot of people still do that. I did that, certainly. The found the 149ers bar in Manhattan uh, (laughs) and and did that for years. And there's no question that commercial rights – are still valuable because a lot of people are going to their local Buffalo Wild Wings on Sunday and watching Sunday Ticket piped in through the bar. Uh, But that said, again, that's clearly not the wave of the future for these properties. And both the NFL and the NBA are very interested in figuring out a new digital package so that they can, in fact, establish direct-to-consumer relationships, we will likely see something major from the NBA first because their rights renewal is up in two years. So what my, my estimation would be that while the bulk of the money and the rights are still tied up with the legacy companies, the NBA has some sort of new regional sports solution because the regional sports network business in a streaming world simply does not make sense. You're seeing the collapse of it real time. I see
0: that you're reporting that right now. Diamond Sports, as you reported with Lillian Rizzo at CNBC, the owner of the largest portfolio of regional sports networks said uh, just yesterday that it missed an interest payment due to a group of bondholders, that bankruptcy is a possibility. Everybody's kind of wringing their hands right now. The NBA, MLB, everything, you might know this as Bally Sports. Sinclair acquired this portfolio of regional sports networks from Disney in 2019 for nearly $11 billion, including roughly $8 billion in debt. I mean, originally the Fox Sports Network, they were later rebranded as Bally Sports. What's going on there? Isn't this supposed to be hugely lucrative?
1: Honestly, this has been a slow-motion train wreck from day one. The The regional sports network business is a dying business because the cable, legacy cable business is a dying business. And it's one and the same. So the way regional sports networks have been paid is the exact same explanation that I just gave you about ESPN. They're baked into your bundle of networks. It doesn't matter if you watch them or not. You're paying 4 or $5 every single month. It's baked into your cable bill. And that money is going to these regional networks. As millions of people have canceled cable TV year after year after year now, which is an accelerating number, more and more millions of people cancel every year, these regional sports networks have taken in less money. This is by far the worst case out there because they had $8 billion of debt on them. Most regional sports networks do not have that. But because of that, and then you add on to that, the fact that this particular group of regional sports networks that Sinclair owns through this kind of shell company called Diamond doesn't actually have like all of the greatest teams in it, which is a factor. It's just sort of a – it's been a bad deal from day one. And so they need to service this debt. They don't have enough money coming in. The leagues are extremely upset with the situation because not enough money coming into the regional sports networks means – that the leagues themselves need to wait to get paid. And they certainly don't want that. I mean, the whole system falls apart in that end. So the leagues are on to this now, and they realize this system doesn't work. Not enough people are paying for regional sports networks in the streaming world. That has been sort of the step one solution here. Sinclair has wanted the streaming rights for all of the sports, and they're like, look, if people are canceling cable, we can at least offer $20 a month For people to watch these things in a streaming world but there's not that much interest by and large to do that it's again these streaming networks often just have one sport so you know are how many people are just going to pay to watch the something maybe they maybe they have two sports the but the hockey and basketball going on at the same time how many people are watching the you know washington wizards and capitals On streaming, and are you willing to pay more for that than you are for every other streaming network you have? Some people, yes, not a lot. So, what is going to happen here, I think, is that the NBA will come up with some new solution. Maybe they'll do a deal similar to what the MLS has done with Apple, where the MLS actually gave Apple. That's Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer. The MLS gave Apple all of their games globally. That's the package. So you can watch any game you want on the MLS through Apple TV Plus, which costs you $4.99 a month. And that's the, going to be their go-forward streaming regional sports solution. Maybe we see something where either the NBA does it themselves or they work with an Apple, and it's a much simpler, less expensive streaming solution because the current model uh, just I, I, I don't think has any future.
0: Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast too, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcast. The link is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Tell your friends and aunt and college roommate. You can catch me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. The handle is FullDRadio. And a shout out to our radio listeners on NPR member station, Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you, too, would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Alex Sherman. He's media reporter for CNBC and CNBC.com. He covers media technology, telecommunications. He was a prolific MA reporter at uh, Bloomberg, where I crossed paths with him. Talk about M&A. That seems to be uh, a solution here in, the, in the, the hot stove league that's ongoing for 365 days a year. You can't imagine... To be honest, HBO lasting or this whole Warner Brothers Discovery thing lasting, it's just this period of austerity. Nobody thought that AT&T, including yourself, a lot of people thought it wouldn't last, you know, uh, a a cultural mismatch with HBO and everything. But this whole cost-cutting strategy and HBO with its storied library of the Sopranos and Game of Thrones and everything isn't working, who's the most likely merger partner for them?
1: I think... So Warner Brothers Discovery does not have a broadcast network. And so many investors and analysts have speculated that ultimately the natural merger partner with them is a company that does have a broadcast network. Because if you put two companies together with two broadcast networks, regulators won't allow it, even today. Even
0: even today in a very different world.
1: Even today in a very different world. There's still – High-speed broadband is still not quite ubiquitous enough in this country. There's still tens of millions of people that rely on broadcast TV, believe it or not. Your antenna, your digital antenna, it's free. It's over the air. It would still be too big of a challenge. There's too many rural regions of this country where that is still a dominant way of viewing. So there's two companies that fit that because there's three major broadcast networks, of course, ABC, CBS, and NBC, Fox is the fourth. ABC, NBC, and CBS are the logical pairings there. Fox is a smaller company at this point. And the idea, I think, that Rupert Murdoch would do that deal is maybe a little bit far out. ABC is owned by Disney. Disney's a huge company. The idea that Disney would merge with Warner Brothers Discovery, I think, is probably unlikely. So that leaves Paramount Global, which owns CBS. And it leaves NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast. Paramount Global would fit Warner Brothers Discovery as a merger partner, and it's possible, certainly, that Sherry Redstone, who controls Paramount Global, would be a seller. I mean, in that this is case. the
0: former CBS Viacom, and right now it's in the news because of James Stewart. You know, this is co-authored book about the decline of sumner redstone and the culture of sexual harassment and even sexual assault with less moonvez and everything a lot of eye-opening uh, articles and excerpts coming out of that and the kind of the rot that viacom cbs took on over the last 15 years i mean we're talking a storied company that had mtv cbs various other great assets on cable that is far behind right now in the streaming wars
1: for sure, and you know, if you talk to people there, they say that they're on a path to a hundred million streaming subscribers, and that they have a, that enough scale, et cetera, et cetera. But they still are losing money with that streaming business. They have a bunch of legacy cable networks like MTV and VH1 and. Comedy Central. I mean, it's crazy.
0: Just stop for a second. I'm older than you. Legacy cable network, MTV. That used to be the new, new thing, man. Video killed the radio star, and it just shows you how brutal it is out there. We aren't watching music videos on MTV anymore. We're watching them on YouTube or Daily Motion or Snapchat or Instagram or or TikTok or whatever it is.
1: Uh, this is what I urge your listeners to do. If you if you are a, still a c- cable subscriber. Go to your cable TV guide, find MTV or Comedy Central or VH1, but, but we'll go to MTV as example number one, and just scroll through the guide to see what is on MTV every hour, every day. There are two shows repeated over and over and over again, a show called Ridiculousness and a show called Jersey Shore, which has been around for a while. It's just one repeat after another, and then eventually at 11 o'clock on MTV, there's a few live episodes, I believe, of Jersey Shore, and then it's just more and more reruns. So the Comedy Central is the same way. It's repeats of The Office over and over and over again. Then it's repeats of South Park over and over and over again with a little bit of live programming, literally one live show a wow. day. These, these cable networks are in essence – zombie networks because all of the scripted programming has already been moved to streaming. Paramount Plus in their case. So there's little value at this point. I mean, they sucked out
0: all of the juice, all the content. It's like in Disney's case, nobody's talking about the Disney Channel.
1: That's right. Exactly. All of the value is gone from these channels at this point. It is only a matter of time before they are sold or shut down. It's inevitable. Uh, So Any company buying Paramount Global – so if in this case, the merger would be uh, Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount Global in this hypothetical situation. You'd have to figure out what are we going to do with all of these legacy cable networks. That may be a deterrent from a company buying the entire Paramount Global. So some people speculate if that company were to be merged, it may actually end up having to sell itself in parts. Private equity buys the legacy cable business. Maybe a company like Warner Brothers Discovery buys the c b s network. Maybe they also buy Paramount the Studio. Maybe Paramount Studio goes somewhere else because Netflix outbids anybody for that. Who knows that company may end up be broken up. The other company that makes sense to merge with Warner Brothers Discovery and maybe it makes even more sense is n b c Universal, and the reason why I say that may make more sense is that in that case, I think Brian Roberts would want to own the company. So he would, in essence, spin off NBC Universal and then become the controlling shareholder of Warner Bros. Discovery and NBC Universal together. So Warner Bros. Discovery could sell itself, and that may be an easier play for its own shareholders because it will get an M&A premium on top of it. In the Paramount world, I think Warner Bros. Discovery would have to be the buyer of that company, so it would be less appealing to its own shareholders.
0: And then that would then soup up an app right now like Peacock, which is, it has momentum. It's doing solidly well, but it's no Netflix. It's no HBO Max even. But then you have a Peacock type app and a Paramount Plus type app. You clearly have login fatigue, as I said before, and you clearly have this desire out there for a super mega app that I want to stop remembering to pay six or seven or eight providers and reinventing the cable bill every month, you know, after this whole process of disruption and disintermediation. What about Apple? What about Amazon? It seems like money is less of an object for them.
1: Look, uh, these tech companies historically have wanted nothing to do with legacy media. They see it as antithetical to what they're trying to do to be, you know, forward-thinking, futuristic companies. That said, Apple did kick the tires on HBO when AT&T bought Time Warner. So could that one asset be acquired by Apple? And Apple's kind of trying to do HBO with Apple TV Plus. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think HBO could it could somehow be spun out of Warner Brothers Discovery and sold to Apple. You know, the, the one thing I'll say just to back up a little bit on Comcast theoretically buying Warner Brothers Discovery. We talked earlier about them potentially buying Hulu. You know They're also maybe going to be bidding on NBA rights. They can't do all of these things, I don't think. So they're going to have to take one shot at it. Uh, So if they do buy Hulu, the idea that they would also buy Warner Brothers Discovery maybe is not feasible. Uh, And I'm not even sure shareholders of Comcast would love them tripling down on the media business, which is a business that has really suffered here over the past, say, 24 months. So each one of these companies may have one shot at this. And probably nothing will happen in the current regulatory regime. Uh, maybe Paramount Global would be sold, but I think it would be a risk from a regulatory standpoint in this current Joe Biden presidency with Lena Khan running the FTC because th- there's at least a fear among a lot of these companies that uh, any sort of mega deal will be heavily scrutinized.
0: Alex Sherman of CNBC, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'd like to switch it to news and journalism. I mean, the stars of yesteryear and the kind of the, the digital media natives like Vice Media and BuzzFeed and others are retrenching. Even Vox had to take an investment, and infusion, what was it, from Jay Penske and others. It's not like this thing has been a slam dunk for venture capitalists and the others who thought that we would be you know, an ad-supported model or even a subscription model for content and journalism online. It works for the New York Times to a certain extent. It works for the Wall Street Journal, and it's been a tough slog for everybody else.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sort of giving away a story that I plan on writing here, but that's okay. Look, there was a strategy among all these digital media companies a couple of years ago where they were all going to consolidate with each other. I mean, there was a New York Times article three or four years ago now where Jonah Peretti, the BuzzFeed CEO, basically said it. He said, look, I think what makes sense for the us is there's too many of these companies We all can't be flourishing, profitable businesses on our own. We need to come together. We need to take some of the cost out. And then we can have a really robust, scaled-up business where instead of having seven $300 million valuation companies, we can have one $2 billion, $3 billion company, and we can be a publicly traded entity. So BuzzFeed kind of kicked this off when it went public via SPAC last year. And what happened? It lost 90% of its value. And when that happened, and clearly there was not the investor appetite for BuzzFeed, the trains on this idea stopped. Vice tried to go public via SPAC and failed. There was just no investor appetite. Vox thought about it, didn't even try after it saw BuzzFeed. Bustle thought about it, didn't get out through SPAC. So they're all on to – I don't even think this is plan B at this point. This is like plan C for these companies. In terms of how they're going to survive, and the new go-forward strategy is each one of these companies is kind of trying to get narrower on its focus. So the latest iteration for BuzzFeed is it's going to be like an AI company. You know, it, it's, the stock popped a couple of weeks ago after right. it said it AI, was in,
0: AI is the hot juice. Like
1: NFT right, exactly. Was two years it was going to sure. have you know AI generated quizzes and you know maybe even like some of its journalism down the road could be. Uh, AI generated through ChatGPT or whatever, uh, but you know you go one by one on these. You know, Vice is still trying to sell itself, but it's kind of leaning in toward being a TV production company. Bustle really wants to be sort of a women's fashion events company. Vox still is kind of leaning into news and journalism when a lot of these other companies have pulled away from that. I mean, BuzzFeed. But what is the name really- of
0: the game? You want to exit and ideally sell to someone. They they took investments from the likes of Comcast and other. You know. Disney and others, to fatten up their valuations while they were in kind of fundraising and expansion mode. But ideally, you want to exit, you want to sell, and the exits have been very elusive. I think Axios was able to exit to, what was it, Cox newspapers? But there aren't many buyers out there willing to take these guys out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, like, you're 100% right. Like The reason these companies are doing these turns is so that they can exit. That's why this is happening. They all want out. There's a hundred, that, that's definitely what's going on. So the, again, plan B or whatever was, well, we'll just all buy each other. But then that didn't work. So now they're trying to refocus on a narrower basis so that the pool of potential buyers is larger. So that's why they're doing these turns in the hopes that a company that would have never considered buying them would now say like oh okay now that you're sort of niche like that now you fit us and you know maybe we'll see some out of the box transactions because they all have vc backing so they all need to sell themselves they have investors who have been waiting on the sidelines here some of them for more than a decade to try to get out at least buzzfeed when they went public now they have publicly traded equity so you know a company like nbc universal who was an early investor there did in fact sell out of almost all of their shares because it's a publicly traded company now and they can do that. The other companies that haven't gone public are still in this boat where their investors are waiting and waiting for, for, for an exit possibility.
0: Alex, what's going to happen to CNN? Uh, it's under Warner Brothers Discovery right now, and it's just been in cost-cutting mode. It did have this glorious kind of Trump bump under Jeff Zucker, and they were hiring reporters left and right and expanding into things and abortive efforts such as CNN. But right now, you get the impression, I think, from the outside that it's an albatross on this giant parent company that's looking to cut billions in debt.
1: Yeah, I don't know, Robin. I, I honestly really think that CNN is a major question mark. I mean, Chris Licht was brought in to run the cable network, uh, it has a great brand, it has the number one news site in the world. In terms of unique viewers, like, CNN.com. be worth
0: a lot of money when we're talking about BuzzFeed and Vox and Axios, and yet it's an afterthought in the financials of a struggling, gigantic media entertainment conglomerate.
1: I think there's certainly a conglomerate discount on CNN. So if CNN were to be sold, I think it would be sold for a fairly hefty price that would probably make Warner Brothers Discovery shareholders quite happy. That said, I get no sense at all from the ownership of Warner Brothers Discovery that they are interested in selling CNN. Uh, I think they want it. They feel like it is a useful tool to continue to collect legacy media fees from the cable bundle for the time being. Uh, they, I think there's some ideas within the company to try to generate more value through you know, making it sort of more nonpartisan. It, it's just an interesting asset, I think, for David Zaslav and... You know, the, the John Malone is a board member. Ultimately, do I think it stays within Warner Brothers Discovery? Well, I think it maybe depends on what happens to Warner Brothers Discovery in full. You know, if it merges with another company, maybe – Regulators don't even allow MSNBC and CNN to be owned by the same company. I'm not sure. Or maybe it, it just gets to the point where you know there is some sort of outside offer that's made for CNN that's so overwhelming that the board of Warner Brothers Discovery simply can't turn it down. But you're right. I, I don't think it's a clean fit necessarily uh, with a lot of the other assets within that company. And I think it's a major question mark on, on what happens moving forward.
0: Close us out, Alex Sherman. Who's in the best shape? I mean, you know, Wall Street used to romance this idea of a content and distribution juggernaut. That's why we all got excited over AOL Time Warner at the turn of the century, and that was quickly broken up. AT&T, Warner Brothers didn't work. Is there this ideal, this perfection out there? Not too hot, not too cold, not too much cheese, not too much sauce, perfect crust.
1: All of these companies have their issues. Uh, No, I don't think there's a perfect ideal. I think the Disney brand and their theme park business is very strong. So I would put them at the top of the list. Uh, Also, ESPN is a strong asset for sure. I think Comcast has a very natural hedge in its cable business, although even that business is now showing signs of weakness as broadband growth slows. Netflix is absolutely the leader in streaming, Uh, and doesn't have to worry about any of these legacy assets. So assuming streaming growth continues and and worldwide, they're probably in the best shape of everyone, but they're also a one-trick pony. So if that streaming growth doesn't continue, they're arguably in the worst shape of everybody. Paramount Global is not big enough probably to last uh, all that much longer, despite what they say internally. Warner Brothers discovery is like definitely in cost-cutting mode here and they have to worry about the large debt total that has been thrown on them from the acquisition from AT&T where they grossly overpaid for Time Warner. Uh, did I leave out companies there? Like they all have their own issues. They, I mean to say
0: nothing of AMC and the other small I mean, big players that they, yeah, those companies they have aren't no even... dance. They have no dance partners in this and I'm wondering when we're finally going to have that opening salvo that gigantic merger Monday. Well, where, I'll, you know. I'll Your editors this, are calling you Sunday at midnight to tell you to get to work early.
1: The thinking among the smaller guys is actually sort of what I said about the digital media guys, that at some point there will be a roll-up among these smaller companies. I wrote this story a few months ago that when Stars is spun out of Lionsgate, even though that company will only have a market cap of like $2 billion, like that may be the vehicle – to start rolling up some of the smaller guys like AMC to try to build scale to, to have something of, of value that's a publicly traded entity. So maybe we see that. But you know, of course, even those companies are still just sort of afterthoughts. So the big question of like who's in the best shape, like, I guess my answer to you is like Apple and Amazon. Those are the companies that are in the best shape. And why are they in the best shape? Because they have lucrative businesses that are not media businesses. I hate to be such a downer, but like, that's my answer.
0: Alex Sherman, prolific media reporter for CNBC and CNBC.com. Your byline is everywhere, and you're always breaking news and breaking eggs, and I'm proud to finally have you on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Robin. Happy to be here.
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, actually, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, Tell your parents, tell your auntie. FullDradio.com. Special shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. We wanted to close out this episode with a flashback to my 2016 interview with a mom and pop variety media disruptor, Arnold Kim. He's a Virginia physician turned internationally renowned Apple blogger how a turn-of-the-century hobby following one of the most important companies of our time turned into a full-time job and full-blown career shift. Everybody wants to know how this happened, if you can give us the long and short of, you a star med school student, you went, you went to Columbia undergrad, you came to Central Virginia to go to MCV yeah. uh, to become a nephrologist, a kidney doctor. Yes. And what happened? Take us back to the inception of MacRumors.com.
2: So before I went into nephrology, I, I was a—I mean, I was always a computer guy. So computer science major in college, uh, went to Columbia, uh, came to medical school in Richmond, and um, that was in the late '90s. So that was right when the .dot com stuff started happening. So a lot of excitement, uh, internet got big, websites got big, uh, and I always—I just sort of on the side had these hobbies. So I made some websites. One of them in two thousand was Mac Rumors, and it was mostly just for hobby purposes. It wasn't, you know, at that time, um, it was still early in terms of the whole blog scene. I think. Were that you did.
0: always a Mac fanboy? Like going back.
2: Uh, I was a Mac fan. Fanboy sort of has some different <laughs> connotations with it. Oh, I don't yeah. even know. I, I, I throw no, no. these terms
0: around like Netflix and chill. And then millennials come up to me like, mister, you just said something. Yeah.
2: No, I was always a big Apple fan. I had you know Apple TC growing up, TGS, and then switched to Mac at some point in college. And Because then- that's the
0: interesting thing with me. I, I was in college in the early 90s. And that um, was the first and last time I encountered a Mac until about 2010 right? Um, yeah. where, where we were presented with them at our magazine. They gave us all IMAX. And then, you know, now it's six years later and I have every single Apple product in the house. I just bought an Apple TV. But it was uh, for many people, I think, in our generation. And, and this, this website came of age. I think the inception, it was launched in February of 2000. So it's 16 years old, plus or minus right now. That was a real moribund time for Apple.
2: Yeah. I mean, the way you describe it sounds about right. I mean, the late 90s, it was not good for Apple. It, things were... Uh, not in good shape. I mean, I guess Jobs came back in. Jobs came back in the late '90s, and so we and it were... had its
0: near-death experience. I think in '97, when Bill Gates had to give that infusion from right. Microsoft, which turns out to be the worst investment in history, because it gave Apple uh, enough light runway to see another day, and then it becomes the largest company in the world.
2: Sure, sure. No, Apple. Uh, Apple was in bad shape, and. Steve Jobs came back, and I think at that time there was, you know, I forget the exact numbers, but there was only like months left for Apple to run with their, you know, how much money they had. So, uh, yeah, that was a a time. But then I was still an Apple fan, and I started the website just for personal interest, hobby, and I started my last year of uh, medical school.
0: Did those did those um, colorful cube iMacs come out when you launched this blog? I mean, did we get any sign of life from Apple to that extent? I mean, it was the tech—it was the tech bubble. So it, it kind of a rising tide was lifting every ship, but it was still very much a Microsoft, Intel, Dell world.
2: Yeah, Apple. No one thought Apple was doing well at that time. I mean, it was the, the website came about after the iMac came out and after Steve Jobs came back. So it was definitely. The beginning of it. But the iPod hadn't come out then and really sort of the years following the iPod is when Apple really took off.
0: So yeah, let's fast forward to that. The iPod's launch, was it t- late 2001? 2001, 2000, yeah. 2001. Did you see this coming at all? We knew. I, I had my first MP3 was um, right before I graduated from college in 1998, was Everlong by the Foo Fighters. And it was on my, you know, uh, a non, it was a private label laptop. From a you know PC company that doesn't even exist anymore, a clone maker. And I would just play it on Winamp left and right. There yeah. was absolutely no indication in the world that the, 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 the company that would come to own the MP3 and, and, and make billions out of it and make a whole different vertical out of it would be Apple. And it wasn't even the MP3 per se. It was the audio track.
2: Yeah, I mean no one I don't think at the time MP3 there were a few MP3 players when Apple came out with theirs. and But audio tracks, let's just say digital audio. Oh, we digital had audio. no
0: idea that Apple, why Apple?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a good question and I think at the time people were like why is Apple wasting time on this audio player when, you know, they're not doing well otherwise. Um, but obviously it, it took off. And but it took it took some time and it also took I think porting to Windows too. For it to really take off, yeah, take people forget initially it was just an Apple, an Apple only product. Yeah, you had to have a Mac uh, right. for the first, I think, which was kind of year. like
0: forcing the ecosystem on you when the world was decidedly skeptical about Apple products. Like you, you know, it's still it's still a minority player in the grand scheme of PC markets. But now you walk into a Starbucks, it's especially on a college campus, the yeah. overwhelming number of laptops and tablets. There are Apple products.
2: Yeah, definitely. No, Apple's done really well. I mean, it's done remarkably well. Obviously, the iPhone has been the biggest. Uh, driver of that.
0: So there must have been an inflection point. This is what we love to get at in full disclosure is kind of that entrepreneur's kind of uh, moment of epiphany where, gosh, you know, Arnold, this could be something more than a hobby. I mean, theoretically, I could staff it with a bunch of enthusiasts and I could monitor it late at night or over the weekend, but you're a family man. You have other things kind of tugging at you. Being a doctor is a full time job, right? You couldn't. You couldn't exactly. You, you, you said you. I, I think I read somewhere you were signed uh, onto an exclusivity agreement to this nephrology practice for a while. So how did you? I want to get to that inflection point where you realize it could be much more than just me in my bathrobe and uh, yeah, know, well, competing with Slashdot.
2: No, 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 I think that really came. I mean, obviously, Mac was doing well even when I started practicing. This was in like two thousand five, probably two thousand six. And so um, I was on a two-year contract with my practice which I, when I joined, um, and it was fine. And then, like I said, I felt like I had two full-time jobs in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I think the things that sort of pushed me over was uh, there were a few factors. First, I had, had my first kid. So I had my daughter uh, in 2007, which, uh, you know, if you have kids— It changed my life. Yeah. So, well, then I had three time, full-time jobs, it seemed, and that that, that wasn't sustainable. And then the other thing that came along was that after my two year contract, I was up to, uh, for, to become a partner. So I had to buy in and then, like, you know, really sort of commit to the practice going forward. And um, it was around that time that I, I was like, you know, sort of figuring out what, you know, is this what I want to do? And this is like, you know, I had like a year, I'd give, it was about a year ahead that I was starting to think about these issues in terms of what, before my contract was up, um, in terms of do I want to do, you know, run MacRumors, and, and MacRumors was doing well at that time, um, but there were certainly risks involved. You was know.
0: there revenue already from MacRumors yeah,
2: by, by the middle part of the decade? Yeah, revenue had started growing probably in the early, uh, probably around 2003, 2004. I would say between 2000, 2003, revenue was either break-even or maybe even a loss at, at, at times, but that was because it was post dot com crash, all the money sort of left the internet for sure. a couple of years. And then 2003, 2004 is when the big blog network started. I think that's when um, Engadget and Gizmodo, those, mm-hmm. um, Gawker.
0: Gawker, right.
2: Those started establishing around 2004 so. Um, and then we grew with that trend, and with the ad revenue coming in, Google AdSense uh, kicked in around that time, too. Uh, so yeah, there was revenue. So it wasn't, I mean, I waited a long time. There, I, you know, quitting wasn't a risk in terms of I wouldn't have a salary the next day. It was more of the long-term stuff.
0: That was some of my 2016 interview with physician turned Apple expert, Arnold Kim. Catch the whole episode wherever you get your pods. I called it, wait for it, Dr. Arnold Kim, Mac Daddy. <laughs> Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Nodderly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcast. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And you can catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.